And in fact, I mean, this raises the whole issue of which I attempt to deal with 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 my poor persecuted book, the authoritative and authoritarian Islamic discourses. Uh, the whole how do we deal with traditions that that come in and say the prophet was bewitched? I mean, if you look in Bukhari, it's there. If you look into Muslim, it's there. If you look into Tirmidhi, it's there. Now, these sources, which, and again, with very good chains of transmission, will have us believe that the part where there's argument and debate about whether, in fact, it was 30 knots tied into each other and thrown in the well. Remember what the original story says? Is that the prophet falls very ill, right? And an angel stands one in his head and one in his feet. We've gone through this, right? Mm-hmm. And then one angel says, what's wrong with him? Oh, he's been bewitched. And then, okay, well, you know, it's, it, there's this 30-knot type of thing thrown into well. So then the Prophet sends Ahmad ibn Yasir to go to the well and, and, and get the 30 knots. And they sit, and every time they unknot a knot, the Prophet feels better and better and better. Well, according to some, according to the reports, and this is the part that there is some debate about in Bukhari and so on. Not debate, but like Bukhari doesn't mention the the, the well story. But Bukhari and Muslim and other these sources mention that the Prophet was bewitched for six months. Six months. And here again, this is the type of issue that Muhammad al-Ghazali raised in his book. But which was raised long before Muhammad al-Ghazali. I mean, he just rekindled it. How do we deal with something like this? Number one, the, the story itself has problems. Even though the chain of transmission could be great. But you have a story about an angel standing at his head and an angel standing at his feet. And one angel said, what's wrong with him? Oh, he's been wheelchair. It's too theatrical, again. I mean, if they're angels and they're sent by God, they don't need to sit there and ask each other what's wrong with him. Oh, he's been bewitched. Oh, who did it? You know, etc., etc. It is, it is, it sounds folkloric. It sounds like the type of stuff you say to entertain people with. Number two. The point that I made earlier about the Quran itself says, how could you say that he is a person bewitched in the in, the, in response to the Meccans? Number three, now from the point of view of simple theology, this also arose in the satanic verses. Are we to accept the idea that for six months the Prophet of Islam went around under influence of any other human being. Where is God during this time? I mean, if, if God promises his prophet protection, if you fear me, if you obey me, if you worship me, I will protect you. This is what God tells the prophet. Are we then to assume that during these six months the prophet has done something wrong towards God, so he wasn't protecting him anymore? Are we then to assume that God didn't really mean it when he said, if you obey me and you worship me, I will protect you, O Prophet, because you are in our eyes. Doesn't the Quran say that? That you are in our eyes. In our eyes means a metaphor for 
we take care of it. Then, as a matter of theology, can one even consider reports like that? Of course, the issue is where to draw the line, because you have the same problem with satanic verses. I had a big disagreement with a woman that you probably, I don't know if you know or not, her name was Moja Kaf. Depending on your perspective, perspective, either a scholar of Islam or a self-declared scholar of Islam, depending on what your perspective is, either way, it doesn't matter. This, this, this was around the time where satanic verses had come up, and Moja was saying, this story has no credibility. It is mentioned only by very few sources in Islam. I agree with the first statement. I don't agree with the second. No, it is mentioned by many sources, including Bukhari in Islam. But it has no credibility. We can't, I mean, credibility is not the number of sources that mention something, but it is a methodology of analysis that we must adopt as to what is consistent with the Qur'an and what's not. And I think it is entirely appropriate for us to say that when it comes to traditions, that which is inconsistent with the theology of the Qur'an, we can make an argument that it should not be accepted. It doesn't mean that we censor it or throw it out, and it doesn't mean that we say conclusively it's not, but we feel in a position to say, to attempt to convince others this should not be accepted as a censor. Since we don't have a church in Islam, we, we don't have an alternative but to rely on this discourse among people and hope that the point that is more reasonable will prevail in the long term, but accept the possibility that it might not prevail forever. I don't think we have an alternative. I mean, this is sort of the consensus forming process. A consensus prevails for a while, but then it might go away. But we have no right to basically come in. For example, if someone comes and tells me, if you write a book about the life of the prophet, how would you deal with the satanic verses issue? I would say I would leave it out of the book, but I would include it in a very long footnote in which I would explain what the satanic verses incident were and explain why I don't think they're authentic, but give sources for pe to people who want to research the matter and says, you know, there are those who did argue it's authentic, such as, etc., 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 here are your sources. I don't believe them. I don't believe it is. And that's why I don't include in the main text. The bewitching of the Prophet, I would treat, deal the same way. I would say, again, if I'm writing the life of the Prophet, there are those who have argued that the, you know, in the footnote, in the long footnote, there are those who said that the Prophet bewitched, here's the story, blah, 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 sort of summarize the story, but I exclude it from the vein of the text for these reasons. This way, I didn't suppress the discourse. I mean, those who want to know about it know that it's there. But at the same time, I'm not forced to enslave myself 
to texts that don't make sense to you. It's, you know, but, but I definitely would not just be quiet about it and pretend like it doesn't exist. I think that's wrong. Or write something about it like, there is no evidence that the Stalin verses ever took place. That's not right, either. There is evidence that it took place. That is just evidence that I don't believe is credible. That's all. There are a lot of things like that. I mean, the whole story of the execution of the Jewish tribe after the Khandaq. I don't believe it took place. I don't believe that the men of that tribe were collected and executed. Yeah, I mean, that, that says that the, this tribe exists afterwards and so on. I mean, of course, this dissertation was not published, it probably won't be, but I am sure that there will be all types of people who try to refute it, Muslim and non-Muslim. Because, you know, it's sort of like Yahud Khaybar, the Jews of Khaybar, is sort of a point of pride for a lot of Muslims. But can I say there's no evidence that it's true? No, there is a lot of evidence that it's true, but it's evidence that I don't believe is credible. There is a distinction. Same with the whole story of the Prophet popping out the eyes of of those who killed the companion and then leaving them to starve to death in the desert. All the Sunni sources say it's authentic. All the Shia sources say it's not authentic. I don't believe it, because I can't believe someone with the manners and, and the morality of the Prophet. But I have other reasons to think that this story is completely fabricated. What I would do is that I would put it in a footnote. I would not censor it, but I would throw it in, in a footnote, say, you know, there is this report, etc., etc. But here's why I think it's not authentic, or, and consequently I don't put it in the text. Finally, let me mention to you that I mean, this, this halakha is not about Islamic law, but one of the issues that often is debated in Islamic law in the context of the surah is whether the, uh, the practice that you were talking about wearing the um, yeah, amulets, amulets, whether it's halal or not, it's haram to wear this, this, this somehow. And there is a school, I mean, there are the jurists that you find who would say, oh, if you, if you write, it's halal as long as you write in Arabic, but the use of uh, Hebrew or, 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 or Latin or Syriac or Aramaic or Hindi rather or Urdu is all forbidden. You have to write in Arabic. My own view is it's all nonsense. I mean, my own view is is very much like and you can take it to mean those who bewitch the prophet those who blow on the knobs and have supernatural powers, or you could take it to mean those who, the evil souls, that you you, 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 you have every incentive to, to escape because of the type of evil will that they perpetuate. Uh, this is the issue of istirqaq. It's called the istirqaq. And whether it's halal or haram, I think it's haram. I think at the very least it's makruh. If not haram, because it endows other than God, someone other than God with supernatural, non-causal powers. And the laws of causality are the laws of God. And I don't believe anyone can break the laws of causality by 
forcing, except with God's permission. This is not, قُلْ أَعُوذُ رَبِّ الْفَلَقِ أَوْ قُلْ أَعُوذُ رَبِّ الْنَاسِ These not, are not verses that are not chapters or surahs that tell you there is no hope. In fact, what they tell you is they advise you on your utter dependence on Allah if you are to prevent the natural state or the natural gravitation towards what? The natural state of affairs is what? The natural state of affairs if you put an apple out and leave it is that it will rot and disintegrate. And we talked about that last halaq as well. And we talked about that last. Natural state of things is for disintegration and deterioration. And same with the human soul. And same with the human intellect, and same with the human body, and same with the human psychology. Your natural gravitation is towards delusion. Now, God, unless you take this apple and put it in, in refrigerated to delay this process, except in the state of, between human beings and God, you might delay it to the point of death. And then you've successfully done. These are the difference about Qul Azra bin Falaq, Qul Azra bin Nas, is they are not verses that, that in which, if you notice for the first time, these are not chapters or verses in which you ask God for forgiveness in the final day or to save you on the final day. These are temporal verses, verses that have to do with life here. And your dependency on God, on life here, very much like an apple might have to depend on the refrigerator to delay the process of what? Number one, none of the reports about this are beyond the shadow of the doubt. Okay. Number two is to believe that they do anything other than the psychological is highly doubtful. Because if if every time the laws of causality, every time there is there is attempt to break the laws of causality, it is condemned in the Quran except when it's a miracle by Allah. And so, I mean, it's, and it's remarkable. It's, if you look at the Qur'an, the Qur'an is quite zealous about people putting themselves in their proper relationship vis-a-vis Allah's laws of nature. Except when Allah decides to break them in the, in the, in the shape and shape of miracle. So now here, if I say that when I blow into my hand and I wipe my face, that seems to be not consistent with the laws of, of physical causality. And it's, we can't say it's a miracle either. Now, so there is, it's quite possible that the Prophet didn't do it. And it's quite possible that it's done without religious significance. I mean, if, if you think about it, if you sit and you do the ayah, our natural tendency is to 
you know, go like this after you finish. Sort of like demarcating one point, another point. It's like shifting gears. And it might, it's quite possible that that's what the Prophet did, and then people thought, you know, part of, it has religious significance. What is really interesting is, no one says, no force says, that unless you do this, your God will not be answered, or unless you do this, you're not going to be blessed. In fact, no source said, no source told you that by doing this, you're blessing your face, or you're blessing your hands, or nothing. I mean, the only thing that is ever said about it is people saw the Prophet do it, and not that consistently. But you just say, well, it's been reported that people saw the Prophet do it. It has no, it has no powers in the sense of, of physics. But in the sense like, when I shake your hand, it's symbolic. Or when I say, please, you know, you, you can't say that when I do this, my, my implores, the imploring you is more effective or somehow I'm sending powers of, of, of sympathy towards you or something like that. But it's simply a human gesture that means I'm imploring. Doesn't seem to be anything beyond that because the question was often asked, what if you do du'a, it's preferred that you do du'a facing the Qibla. But what if you do du'a silently, does it count? He said yes. What if you do du'a as you're laying in bed, does it count? He said yes. What if you do du'a if you're in the bathroom? He said yeah, it's not good manners, but it still counts. It's just not good manners. You shouldn't do du'a while you're going to the bathroom. You should talk to God. And what if you do du'a while you're laying your hand on your lap and you just talk? Does it count? You said yes. It doesn't seem to have any significance. No one claims that it has any significance.